WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Welcome again, everybody, to City Talk here on WBCA Radio. And uh, I'm doing a first for me. We have had Dwayne Steele on this program before, but Dwayne's main occupation is as a pastor. And I have never interviewed a pastor before and thought it would might be a, a kind of a unique experience. So, uh, Dwayne, welcome again to this program. And I want to talk back. to you. I want to talk to you about, I mean, using parallels here, in your case and mine, I knew in the ninth or 10th grade that I wanted to get into radio. When did you decide that you wanted to get into the religious world and be a pastor? I knew probably by about age nine, actually. Uh, And I should preface anything I say here with the fact that becoming a pastor became a second career. But I knew early on because I got to go to a lot of the big city churches in New York. And I was thrilled with listening to some of the great pastors. For example, I got to hear Harry Emerson Fosdick while he was still at Riverside Church. And some of you listening might remember his name. I got to hear Dr. Norman Vincent Peale at Marble Collegiate Church. And just thinking about him makes me excited because he was such a dynamo when it came to preaching. Uh, But at a very young age, I was taken to church. And uh, uh, it was a good thing because uh, it kind of instilled in me this desire to want to be in the pulpit and talk to people and say things to people, maybe that made sense. I don't know if it ever did, but I tried. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I certainly know the name Norman Vincent Peale. In fact, I think Larry Glick interviewed him at one point um, in his illustrious career. Now, in Batavia, two things. First of all, if we were Catholic, Uh, we went to church. Any holy day of obligation and every Sunday, we went to church. And we also had religious instructions on Tuesday afternoons. Um, How did the New York Institute handle the religious aspect? We had religious instruction on Monday nights, usually. uh, And what would happen is the hour after supper in lower school, uh, when I was in the lower school division, we would have religious instruction beginning at six, right after supper. The Protestants went to a teacher uh, I learned to love and respect, though most of the kids didn't like her at all. She was called Miss Margaret. And uh, we Protestants went to her. The priests went to a, uh, I mean, the Catholics went to a priest from St. Lucy's Church which was not too far away. And the Jewish kids went to a rabbi docket. And uh, we would have religious instruction from six to seven on Monday nights. On weekends, those of us who were in school on weekends would go to a Missouri Synod Lutheran church over on Williamsbridge Road called 
the Lutheran Church of Our Savior. And it was about maybe a, a mile from the Institute. So it was a nice little car ride. And uh, it was an amazing thing because going to that church in the 1950s, they were so accommodating that they actually made sure we had all of our Sunday school materials in Braille. And this was back at a time when uh, anything that was transcribed into Braille was done either by the American Printing House for the Blind or Clovernick Printing House or the Howe Press at Perkins School for the Blind up here in Massachusetts. And uh, But these people, there, the Missouri Synod folks did all of this with hand copied Braille transcription. It was amazing. But I was going to say, yeah, that's copies. Yeah, it was totally amazing uh, to have all of that material. So from the moment I started learning Braille, I had the Sunday school materials made available to me. Now, I got to ask you, whenever anyone thinks of New York and thinks of religion, you always, at least I do, think of St. Patrick's Cathedral. Did you go there? I never went there as a child. Uh, I went to all of the, I went to uh, Riverside, as I mentioned earlier, and I went to Marble Collegiate, and I went to St. John the Divine. But I never got to go to St. Patrick's until I grew up and took my children there. I'll bet that was an experience. It really was. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. And the acoustics are so awesome. You know, you could start chanting or whatever, and you can hear it forever. All right. And now, in Batavia, again, we had a guidance counselor that we could go sit down and talk to. And he would work in conjunction with what was known back then as VRS, or Vocational Rehabilitation Service. And they if they liked what you wanted to do, they would finance it. They would pay your way to college, et cetera, et cetera. Tell me about you and your experiences with the uh, Institute. We didn't have anything like that. What we had was individuals who would help you, who would promote whatever it is you were interested in. Um, and uh, I should also say that since I, uh, mentioned earlier that the ministry was a second career. I got there by a very roundabout route, which did not include the Institute, but did include vocational rehab services later on when I finally decided where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And uh, But at the Institute, there were teachers and house mothers who were in tune with a lot of what we were thinking and doing. And I also had a very best friend named Craig Werner and his parents kind of adopted me because he was an only child. And so when he started collecting braille volumes of the King James version of the Bible, Mrs. Werner made sure that I got some of those same volumes of the King James Bible. Uh, and back in those days, when you wanted a Bible in Braille, you had only one choice. You had only the King James Bible, and 
it had to be ordered through the American Bible Society. And some of your listeners might even remember that back in the 1950s, the American Bible Society, at a great loss to them, offered the Bibles for 25 cents a volume. And these were huge. They were they were large notebook sized volumes, and there were 18 of them that made up the King James Bible, and you could buy them just like you would buy the old golden book encyclopedias. Do you remember the one they used to have the encyclopedias in the supermarkets? Oh, yeah, very well, yeah. And, and, and you would buy the first volume for so much, and the, all the rest of the volumes would be like $1.49 each. Well, the only difference was that these volumes were all a quarter apiece. So what Craig Werner's mom did was that she'd go down to the American Bible Society headquarters on Park Avenue every Friday afternoon and pick up a couple of volumes of the Bible until she had the whole thing and she'd carry these volumes back home on the subway and <laughs> it was quite a sacrifice i would think for her uh but in my case eventually my house mother we knew her as miss angie and now her last name escapes me but anyway miss angie and her family when they discovered that i wanted the bible they actually bought me the complete King James Bible in Braille for my 13th birthday, and I was off and running. Oh, you keep saying a second career. What else were you interested in? Well, when I was a junior in high school, <clears throat> I kind of lost faith, and I was kind of interested in a, in a girl who was a member of the LDS church, the Mormon church, and she drove a car. And if you were a blind person and you were dating or trying to date someone who drove a car, you were in the upper echelons of society and your school for the blind. Uh, so I got real acquainted with this Mormon girl and I was kind of into the LDS church for a couple of years, and I went off and majored in music because of my being uh, a, a fairly good pianist. So I went into music, became a cocktail pianist, and worked at that for a number of years. And by the time I went back into the ministry, I was already married with two daughters. So you were a cocktail pianist. How long? I didn't know that. How long yes. did you do that? Well, I did that on a regular basis from 1968 to 1974 when I entered seminary. Um, I was able to continue playing cocktail piano in the Washington, D.C. area all the way through my time at the Shenandoah Conservatory of Music, now called Shenandoah University in Winchester, Virginia. And I was playing around the Washington DC area. In fact, I can boast of having been one of the first musicians to open up the Virginia uh, side of the DC area when they went to having liquor by the drink available in 1969. And I was at a little restaurant that actually bought the license so that they could have 
music, live music in their restaurant and offer drinks on New Year's Eve, 1969. I was oh, playing wow. at a place. Yeah, I was playing at a place called Summit Manor Restaurant in Falls Church, Virginia. And we had all the liquor we wanted <laughs> during that time. <laughs> and, 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 and I was out of the Mormon church by then, so you, they can't accuse me of being a Jack Mormon. <laughs> ah, but you were with somebody who could drive a car. We didn't, or I didn't have any contact like that uh, at Batavia. The only contact I had like that was my parents um, or when we would get on the bus to go to different schools to perform we always mm -hmm. uh went to different schools and and uh, you know our chorus performed our school dance band performed our orchestra performed and i was in all of those so you know i got to get out of the school and as they say see how the other half live well, and um i was living with uh during my junior and senior year of high school i lived with my grandparents and was able to be allowed to get the off-campus permits because by then I had just turned 18. And uh, I guess we should tell people that one of the things that happened a lot in our school situations, yours and mine, was that we might be a little older when we graduated. Um, uh, because at least at the Institute, we didn't have a graded system as such until we got into the upper grades. And uh, uh, then we were graded. And by then I was, well, I was 13, I guess, when I entered sixth, what they called sixth grade. And uh, then I graduated uh, when I was 20. So when I was 18, I was living with my grandparents and they signed all the permission slips for me to come home on weekends, be away from school on weekends. And of course, when I was home on weekends, I was able to date my Mormon girlfriend. Uh -huh. All right. So you were a cocktail pianist for a while. Um, and you decided that religion was where you wanted to go. Did you have a, a VRS counselor? I did. I had a real nice VRS uh, counselor. Uh, his name was Chip, but now I cannot remember his last name. But when, for a while in the um, early 1970s, I tried my hand at computer programming. And uh, I thought, you know, this was back in the day when you, you had the little computer cards and you had to do all kinds of stuff with the computer cards. And I was not doing too well at the Lear Siegler Computer Institute in Silver <laughs> Spring, Maryland. And I was home one afternoon with my 18-month-old daughter, Jennifer, and I was babysitting. But I was also working on a computer program and having to put in order all these little computer cards, which I'm sure many of you remember, the old you know, cards like they used to write checks on. They had all these little holes in and you had to put them in order according to the holes. And I had these stacks of cards all lined up and my little toddler daughter came running into the room and she said, cards, play them. 
and she went <laughs> swoosh, and all these computer cards <laughs> went everywhere. And I decided on that very day, I was done with computer programming. In the meantime, I had begun to be active in a Lutheran church with uh, uh, my family. And I was really close to the pastor of this little mission church we were going to. And I began reading a lot of literature, you know, that was being put out by various denominational churches. And I took several Bible correspondence course, began studying scripture in earnest, even to the point of taking volumes of the scriptures with me to work so that I could read while traveling on the bus to and from work at night. I know that sounds weird to have a Braille Bible sitting on a table nearby while you're playing cocktail piano for people to drink, <laughs> you know, and, and, uh, but I did it. And in 1974, no, 1972, I'm sorry, I got admitted to the Shenandoah Conservatory of Music in Winchester, Virginia, where I got my bachelor's degree in church music. And I went for church music for two reasons. One, because it would get me closer to gaining acceptance into a seminary. And two, because if you took a degree in church music, you didn't have to take biology. And I was not looking forward to dissecting frogs. <laughs> I flunked biology, as a matter of fact. I had to oh. take it in summer school. Oh. So oh. I wasn't I... crazy about biology either. You know, um, but anyway, this, this, this seminary, how long, how long was that? How many years? It was a four-year seminary program uh three years of classwork and a year of internship in between the third and fourth years and the lutheran theological seminaries at that time there were two in the pennsylvania in the state of pennsylvania there was one at gettysburg and there was one in philadelphia and i applied to both seminaries in the winter of 1973-74 because I was about to finish matriculating at Shenandoah. So both seminaries were interested, but the drawback was that neither one was comfortable with um, admitting a blind student. And so I had to really work really work hard uh, to get admission. In fact, when it finally came down to it, I decided on Gettysburg because I liked the idea of a seminary in the country and the idea that my girls would be able to play on a playground and not be worried about a lot of heavy traffic in the city. And when I went to the admissions office and I sat down with the admissions director, he sat there for the longest time puffing on his pipe <laughs> and shuffling papers on his desk. And finally, he said, well, your paperwork is all in order. So I guess we have to accept you. However, 
I have no earthly idea how you're ever going to do the work. We'll never say never to people like you and me, Ken. You know, if you, if yep. you say never, that's when we jump on the old bus and make sure it happens, you know. So that's exactly what happened. I went to Gettysburg and I graduated with honors uh, in the spring of 1978. So it was four years. Four years. And uh, I did an internship. As a matter of fact, uh, when it came time to do internships, what they did was they brought in a whole bunch of pastors from all the churches, from churches all over the country who would, you know, it was kind of like bidding on slaves, you know, uh, <laughs> They would they would bid on you or they would look at you and interview you. I felt like I was, you know, going up for the Miss America pageant and about to lose, you know. And <laughs> I was actually turned down by 17 supervisors in a single day. And what they, excuse did they give? Well, they kept saying, have you been interviewed by others? And I would say, yes, uh, I've been interviewed by a few others. And they said, well, we'll think about it. And then, of course, when the when the paperwork came back, uh, I didn't all of my classmates or most of them had internships and I didn't. Fortunately, the director of the field education program at the seminary, a guy named Dan Sandstead said to me, I think I know a pastor who might take you. There's a church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, St. John's Lutheran Church, and they don't have an intern. They never have. Well, he said, I'm going to call the pastor and I'm going to have him interview you. So I got a call and it said, come over to the coffee shop and meet Pastor Wayne Peterman. As soon as I met Wayne, something clicked and we were ready to be a team and we were a team and he accepted me immediately after he brought a couple of folks from the congregation down to interview me and talk to me and when we got together and I got my family moved to Lancaster the very first day on the job he picked up the internship manual you know, everybody's got to have a manual, you know, <laughs> and they, the seminary had just come out with this new manual for interns. He picked up the manual. He tossed it in the trash and he said, if you're going to be my intern, you're going to do everything I do. And darn if he wasn't right. Three weeks after I got there, we had six people in the hospital. He was in the other part of the state, way over in Johnstown, visiting his mom. And I was alone, you know, in the office. I was in charge. And one of the people died. And I went, OMG, what do I do now? And I called him. And I said, Wayne, uh, so-and-so has died. And the funeral is scheduled for Wednesday morning. What am I supposed to do? And there was this long pause. And finally he said, the funeral. <laughs> <laughs> and my very first funeral was my very first funeral. <laughs> In more well, ways than one. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad the funeral wasn't yours. 
Um, I know. <laughs> now, now tell me, when I was in college, um, I had a grant from VRS to be able to pay for readers. Uh, and some did it for the money, and some did it just because they wanted to. Um, how did you manage that? Well, I had to fill out timesheets for uh, the Virginia VRS program. Uh, so, but when I got to seminary, especially, I really had it made because uh, I had other classmates who were taking all the same courses I was. And so a number of my books were available to me by being read by classmates. Those that weren't, I had to get copies of and contact a group that was then known as Recording for the Blind Incorporated. What is it now called? Uh, Recording for the uh, something about handicapped and dyslexic or something. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, I would get packets of cassettes of all the different books and scramble really because sometimes it was like mid-semester when i'd get the material yeah so i'd i'd scramble to get this stuff read i had one of those sony uh for a while i had one of those sony reel-to-reel tape recorders where you would speed up the uh the the reader so he sounded like mickey mouse and when you turned on that speech thing it sounded like a bus was coming <laughs> 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 yeah, I can remember those recordings for the blind. I remember the books uh, from there and some of the talking books, even some of the magazines were on flexible discs. Oh, those, the worst, yes. worst quality in the world. Absolutely. Uh, to, to, to have to listen to them. But, you know, as the old saying goes, if you want to get a book read bad enough, you're going to listen yeah. to them. And I did I that. I remember getting Newsweek. Remember, Newsweek came out that way, and I always looked forward to getting my Newsweek. It was always a week late, but hey, who cares? Yeah, exactly, no. exactly. That doesn't happen anymore. But, but, um, right. So you started working with this gentleman. How long did that last? Okay, I worked for a year as his intern, and when the year was up, he really liked having me around and was willing to hire me as a weekend assistant, which was great because I had this last year at Gettysburg to fulfill. And, uh, and I didn't want to have to move my family back to Gettysburg. You know, once you move your family, you just don't, you just don't pick up and move again if you yep. can help it. So yep. um, they were able to stay in Gettysburg, uh, in Lancaster, and I would commute to Gettysburg two days a week for classes during my senior year. And then came the biggest challenge of all, looking for a call. You can't get ordained in the Lutheran Church unless you already have a call. So that was, a, uh, that was another story altogether. I now, got now turned explain, down. explain that, a call. What does that mean? That means uh, you have to have a parish. You have oh. to already be hooked up with a parish before you can actually um, uh, get your ordination. 
the first time. Okay. And I went looking. I said, I'd like to work in Virginia. I contacted the bishop in Virginia, and he was, he had been a, a good friend of mine. We'd gotten to know each other over the years. And uh, so I interviewed in several parishes in Virginia. And all of them were turning me down one after another. You know, I, I had enough rejection slips, as they say, to cover the bathroom wall. And <laughs> about the at the end of April in 19. No, I'm sorry. At the end of near the end of March in 1978, I got a call. He said, the bishop said, I've got one more parish. And it's way down in southwestern Virginia, and you're not going to want to go there. Trust me, he said. They've been through pastors, and they've eaten all of them, literally, which means, you know, they've, they've run them all off, and everything happened to them. He said, but if you want to, I'll arrange an interview. And I said, well, what have I got to lose? You know, I'm about to finish seminary. I got to go somewhere. And by then I had three children. I had two daughters and a son. So I, on a Saturday, the, toward the end of March, Easter was early that year. It was Palm Sunday weekend, March 18th, 1978. I flew down to Roanoke, Virginia. And I was met by the secretary of the Virginia Synod, who decided he would take me to Hillsville and sit in on my interview because he was worried about how that was going to go. So we drove to Hillsville and I met some of the folks. And then after having dinner at their house in town, I got in this truck with this good old Southern boy and we started driving. And we drove, and we drove, and we drove. I said, where in the world are we going? He said, we're going to the church. The church was 10 miles out of town on an old dirt road. And we got to the church, and I walked in, and uh, they gave me a bulletin, and the secretary of the synod read me the bulletin. I said, we have to change one of the hymns for Palm Sunday. And he said, we can't do that. He said, you're just being interviewed here. I said, we have to do it. I want to sing this hymn tomorrow. Well, the chairman of the call committee was so impressed by my authoritative nature that she pushed as hard as she could to get me called as their next pastor. And that's basically how it happened. Uh, I knew by the time I left on Palm Sunday afternoon, when I went back and took the plane back up to Pennsylvania, I knew that I was going to go to Hillsville, Virginia. And it's a town way in the southwestern part of the state, which now is very famous for one of the world's largest Labor Day flea markets. But back at that time, it was kind of an old bump in the road. As they say, there wasn't even a pizza hut in Hillsville when yeah. I got there. How <laughs> about that changed? But now it's it's quite a thriving community. But happily, I was able to work there for my whole ministry. Which was how long? 
32 years. I retired and, in August of 2010. And how were you accepted by the uh, congregation? I'm assuming there were no, as you put it, bumps in the road. Well, uh, you know, I suppose at the beginning there were lots of, you know, uh, there was lots of skepticism. In fact, I heard after I got the call that before they actually issued the call to me, there were a bunch of them sitting out under the trees after church one Sunday, and they said, we we're about to call a blind pastor. And they, they said, well, what does that mean? I mean, that's good. Maybe it's a good thing. They won't, he won't see all of the ugliness we all have. And one of the old mountain boys piped up and he said, he may see more than we want him to see. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, so but there was a lot of humor involved. But across the years, we got very close and people worked with me. And I also did some things outside of the parish uh, because of my musical talents. I was able to travel around and do some what I called celebrations, which were musical concerts, which uh, brought together sacred and secular music in a program which made people relax and listen to the gospel being shared in a very positive way. So it worked out. I was able to combine everything. Did you need help from anybody preparing a sermon every week for 32 years? 32 years. My God. <laughs> well, you know, preparing the sermons is easy for me. I like to write. So I still like writing. Uh, so preparing the sermons was not a problem. What uh, I, of course, needed help reading a lot of the church material. Most of it was not available, uh, of course. So I would uh, have readers, have folks from the congregation who read to me, and uh, uh, I would get the information I needed, and then I could go off and write the sermon. Back in those, back in the early days, of course, I used a good old Perkins Brailler like you did to write a lot of my things down. But as technology advanced, uh, I de developed an interest in the technology and learned to use scanning software so that by the end of my ministry, I was pretty adept in uh, the modern technology um and uh now i'm up here in massachusetts and uh, uh with a very 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 talented young lady who helps me do a lot of my work that i continue to do i'm still i'm still working in fact uh we're putting up a youtube video even as you and i speak it's probably already up there uh, on the gospel lesson for the fourth Sunday in Lent, for those who use the revised common lectionary, which is used by the uh, Episcopal Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, Presbyterian Church, a lot of the other churches, there is a Sunday coming up on the 19th where the gospel is the ninth chapter of John, the story of the man born blind. And I have... With the, with the help uh, of my partner, Allison, and a couple of other folks who have worked on the actual video, I have come up with a real good message on how that 
chapter should be discerned by the preacher who's going to preach it and then shared with his or her congregation. And it's on it's on YouTube. You can look up John nine, the blind man who knows too much. Is the name of the YouTube video. All right. We started talking a little bit about technology. Uh, it's certainly become easier, uh, at least from a, a, a pastor point of view, I would assume. Um, do you and I often ask this of people, do you miss the fact that you, you don't do this every week? Do you regret that you retired when you did? No, because I've been able to use uh, uh, Zoom, just like uh, we're using here, um, to put together for friends of mine who are interested. uh, Once the uh, COVID crisis started, in fact, just before COVID started, I I kind of got an intuition. And uh, I decided I would buy a Zoom account. And when the uh, COVID, the lockdown actually started, I contacted my parish, my old parish, and I said, uh, what, are, would you, what are you all doing about uh, church services? They said, oh, we're just going to cancel. And I said, you don't have to do that. So I gave my Zoom account info to the folks at Gladesboro, and for a long time, Allison and I ran their program for weekly services so they could continue to have services. And we liked this idea so much that we branched off and decided to do this for our own, uh, just our own benefit and invite people who, you know, expressed an interest to to be there. And interestingly enough, um, lately, we've been reaching out to a lot of older uh, blind people who are looking for some kind of a spiritual outlet uh, where they can hear uh, a message of hope. And we are offering that message of hope twice a week on what we call Vespers. We called it virtual Vespers to start with. Uh, Vespers being, for those who don't know, one of the offices of the church for the evening. So we do this on Monday and Thursday evenings at 7.30. And we invite people to come in a half hour early and we do chatting of just about anything in the world. And after the service, we stay around for virtual coffee hour, if you will. And and it's, uh, it's been very, very successful. Probably the best investment I've made in a long time. So I'm still... I've still got my hands in the, uh, uh, I've still got my hands in the mashed potatoes or whatever. Yeah. You know. Just, just like I have with the doing this radio program. Mm-hmm. Um, I have always liked it uh, being in radio and uh, a gentleman that we have both talked about named Ed Walker out of Washington, DC said to me once, even before I went to college, he said, Kenny, if you like this business well enough, It'll get in your blood and you'll never get out of it. And he was right. He was right. I absolutely love what I'm doing. I can pick who I want to talk to. Um, I don't get paid for it, but 
there's still the satisfaction of being somewhat of a ham and (laughs) being in front of a microphone. So we're we're both getting, I think, what we want. Now, you kind of glossed over the fact of getting to Massachusetts. How did all that happen? Um, I met uh, I met Allison um, through uh, our work we were doing with the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. We were trying to do a project where the uh, Evangelical Lutheran Worship book, a new book that had come out, would be put into Braille. Um, I I don't talk about this much because uh, we were snow we were stonewalled. Uh, every time we tried to work on the project by some of the authorities in the church. And uh, so that uh, though the project never came to fruition, uh, our relationship did. (laughs) So that's how that happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I'm sure, as you know, I've been friends with Allison for many, many years, uh, as I'm sure she has told you. Uh, yes. When I was working at WBZ Radio, we used to do a uh, what I used to call a milk and cookie break at two thirty in the morning, and uh, every Sunday morning at three o'clock, when it was all done, I would take a telephone call, and it was from our mutual good buddy Allison. So yes. <laughs> we we both have a a uh, good connection. Um, yes, we do. So, so what are some of the things that you, I mean, you have to do a sermon every week, right, for this group? I, uh, we switch off, you know, because it's just us and we can do anything we want and we don't have any church affiliations we have to worry about. Um, we have several folks from other churches who are also pastors uh, who have uh, gone through all the hoops that I've had to go through. And so they help out. Allison has also uh, presented sermons on the on our uh, on our co- program and uh, other people as well. Uh, anyone who wants to may fill in and share something that they might think will be important f- for a particular evening of Bible study and fellowship. So there's lots and lots of resources out there. And uh, there are lots and lots of people who we wish they had gone into the ministry, and this gives them an opportunity to do it. Do you do counseling, religious counseling of any kind? I don't anymore. Uh, There are other people who can do that, and probably a whole lot better than I could. Of course, I I will counsel friends if if they want to talk about things. Um, I did a lot of it in the ministry. Uh, And nowadays, most of that is better left to those who are licensed in the field and for whom it's not just one of many uh, trades. You know, one of the things about pastoring is that you're kind of like the old horse and buggy doctor. You're good at a lot of things, but not necessarily that good in any of them. Now, did did you have like office hours during the week? Like uh, when I was in college, we had people who were our senior advisors, as it were, that if we had any problems, we could we could go to them. Did you did 
Did you do that when you were in oh, uh, Virginia? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because uh, it was part of the work. You know, you know, back in the day, people would go to your, their pastors before they would ever consider going to any mental health counselor. Uh, of course, now today, especially since COVID, where so many issues are coming up that uh, are, are frankly scary for me, uh, there are other people. Uh, we're, we're not, I don't think that the regular parish pastor today uh, is equipped to handle some of that stuff. Um, and the parishioners don't want to go to their pastors. They want to go to uh, somebody, you know, and pay them, pay them the big bucks. I never got any of the big bucks that I would have gone for. You know, if I had known I could have gotten the big bucks, I would have charged everybody. But uh, um, I, I, I did it back in the day. And it was a whole lot easier back in the 80s and 90s than it is in the 2000s. Now, I, I am completely ignorant on this point. When you are a Catholic, you go to confession. Did you have anything like that when you were a pastor? Well, I had one person do a private confession with me once. Uh, but by and large, confession is part of our liturgy or our service. Uh, and so uh, and there are there are uh, instructions for doing private confession. Uh, I was not comfortable with private confession and glad that only one person ever insisted on coming to a private confession. And uh, luckily for me, it wasn't a confession where he had committed a murder or something like that. So <laughs> I, I, I wasn't into that. I wasn't tied into that kind of a, a situation. It was a family crisis. And I don't even remember now how it worked out. But we don't do that as a general rule. All right. Uh, is there anything you want? I mean, you want to give a, 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 a website or a YouTube address before we wrap this up? Well, uh, you just do your regular YouTube uh, account and John 9, the blind man who knows too much. And it should bring up, if it is all up and running by now, a video that will share a lot of information about uh, the man born blind from that chapter of the Bible that I think has been very, very much misinterpreted. Uh, I would, I'm glad that uh, you and I had the chance to do this today. It's really been uh, fun. Well, I have certainly enjoyed it. Uh, as I have told many people that I have admired in the in the different fields of occupation, I think you are a credit to uh, the religious community. And uh, it's been a, always a pleasure to talk with you and to know you and uh, do something like this. And I can't thank you enough for sitting down and spending some time uh, when you could have been listening to the New York Mets. But I'll let that pass <laughs> in a right. moment. <laughs> I think That's though, they, right. have a, they have a night game tonight at seven o'clock, I found out today. So maybe oh, that one will be broadcast. So, oh, yeah. I, um, you know, I think Howie Rose will regret the fact that he didn't get a chance to hear this. 
but uh, yeah. that's his loss. Anyway, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank so you. much, Ken. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this as well. And that will do it for another edition of City Talk. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.